I think it would be fair to say that living as a Christian is to live in exile. And by that, what I mean is um, living as a Christian is to live in a world that is not essentially our home and which does not practice our values or our way of life in many significant ways. And this year, we've been exploring in detail what that means. And we did it just after Christmas. Uh, let's just check. Let's check whether you remember. What book of the Bible do we look at then? Pop quiz. Daniel, yeah, and we looked at a real-life exile, and the book of Daniel is all about living in exile. And this term, we're looking at the book of 1 Peter, and it's not just that Rich has been lazy with the graphics for this series. Some of you are like, we had this last time, he's just changed one word. Um, Actually, the whole thing, this is like a a kind of sequel to the last series. There's very, very similar themes are in 1 Peter, this idea of living as temporary residents or foreigners, which comes throughout the whole book. And so we're looking at this theme again. And I think to summarize, really, some key points, if we were to say we're living in exile, it would mean uh, being sure of at least two different things. And the first of those would be to live in exile is to be sure that this, where we live now, is essentially not our home. There's a negative aspect to it, that this is not our home. These are not our values. This is not our way of life. To be in exile is to realize that, but that on its own doesn't do. That's not enough. Because then the obvious question would be, well, but what is our home? What is our way of life? What is our values? We don't just need to know this is not our home. We need to be sure of what our home is as well. And actually, for us as Christians, as exiles, if we use that imagery, this second thing presents some significant difficulties to us. Because you see, for most exiles, or let's use more up-to-date language, refugees, a uh, migrant, someone who used to live in one country but has moved to a very different culture. I know there'd be some in the room uh, that would fit into that category. If, someone, if you would say, look, I want to hold on to my, my culture, like my, my home culture, my family's culture, when someone said, well, what is it? You wouldn't just be able to say hypothetically what that was. You wouldn't have to get out a book and say, I think it's like this because you would have lived there. You would have had personal experience of being in that culture, being brought up in that culture, being, in many cases, educated in that culture formally. Actually, for us as exiles, as Christians, the difference is we have never had, none of us have had direct experience of our home. Now, I'm just talking slightly abstract at the moment, so let's make this, well, a little more concrete, uh, as you'll see in a minute. But where is our home? What are we talking about here? Well, Paul sums it up. In Philippians 3, verse 20. Let's see if anyone can complete this sentence. But we are citizens of heaven. He says, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Heaven is our home. Now, you do get the stories every now and again uh, of this sort of thing. So just to check here, just want to be absolutely clear. Has anyone ever been to heaven? Wandered around or anything? You see some videos on YouTube every now and again? This sort of thing. No, just check. We're on the same page then. None of us have actually been to heaven. Now, we, we would, I hope, I really hope this, would have been part of Christian communities that have tried to bring a taste of heaven to the very community they're in. I, I really hope uh, the community here uh, would have flavors of that. But you know what? However well we do, we're not going to make it perfect here. And we've just never actually physically been there. And so we really need some help in understanding what is it like to live as a citizen of heaven. Now, 
if you're thinking, yes, Johnny, we do need to know that, you're in luck. Because uh, the next passage we're looking at in 1 Peter kind of gives us just that kind of assistance, gives us that sort of help. And if you've got a Bible or a phone, uh, it might be helpful to turn to it. There's a lot going on in this passage, so it's helpful to have it open, if, if you will. Uh, it's in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 13 to 25. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 25. Now let's just bring us up to speed before we crack on with this. Last week, no, it wasn't last week. How many weeks ago was it when Rich was here with a bin bag? Two weeks. So you don't have to cast your mind too far back if you were around. Uh, Rich did the passage before and basically outlined to us the amazing blessings, the spiritual blessings of being a citizen of heaven, of being a Christian. Um, And we today, if those were the spiritual blessings, the salvation that is past and present and future, joy and hope and all of that stuff up there, today the camera pans downwards and we get a more ground-level, practical picture of what it's actually like to live out this citizenship. And just to give us our bearings through this, because as I'll explain in a minute, we'll need this, I want to just refer to the verse that finished Rich's passage last time, the verse before we're looking at today, that I've already referred to this morning. It's verse 12 of 1 Peter 1 that says this. It says, It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Wow! It's one of those enigmatic verses in the Bible that is meant to send your mind boggling. That is not meant to go, well, how exactly would Gabriel do that? Or where exactly is he when he's doing it? Those are not the questions. The question is, whoa, if the angels are excited about this, if they're in anticipation, if they're on the edge of their seats thinking this is wonderful, this is pretty wonderful. This is a good thing, okay? Now, that's true. That's a summary of what we've seen before, the spiritual blessings of being a citizen of heaven. But it's also true of what we're looking at today, what it's like to live it out on planet Earth. And I want to underline that. In a minute, we're going to say it together. I want to imprint this <laughs> on our brains because I just want to warn you, while I hope we'll get there by the end, there will be points in this talk where you're like, wonderful? Really? Okay? Like that kind of uh, thing earlier. Some of you might be like, oh, here he goes. Like, Johnny, get, getting all excited. Uh, joy celebration and it can be like there's a kind of joy and wonderfulness that's like way like whoop, whoop, and party and psh, balloons and all that sort of stuff okay uh, and that's good I think that's really helpful to express things in that way sometimes um, but that's not if it's just that you know that's not really wonderful that's just froth okay actually there's a wonderfulness I think we're dealing with today that is going to have to t- we're going to have to take you through some things that seem the opposite of wonderful but all I want actually is not we're not going to finish with a yeah ah, like we're not finishing there today I want to finish with something much deeper there's a wonderfulness that you can be thanking Jesus for and thanking the father for for years and years and years and on your deathbed going I agree with the angels that was wonderful that's where we're going today and so I just want us to remember this okay so after me, I'll repeat, repeat a bit, say a bit, you just repeat it. It's also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Let's do it again. It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Great, I think you've got it. I think that's really good. <laughs> Thanks for that, Andy. If you need the verse at any point. And he's the man. Let's read it together. Uh, Verse 13. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. 
Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. For now, you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember, the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now, in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your hearts. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. Lots going on in this passage. We're not going to be able to go through every bit, uh, but I want to just particularly focus on the first half. Just go through, go back to the beginning. Let's go through a few of the verses here and see what they offer us about this wonderfulness of what it's like to live as a citizen of heaven. Let's start verse 13 then. Peter does not mess around. He gets straight down to business here. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. It's a challenge right off the the back. And it's a challenge that I want to give at the beginning today. And it's a challenge that we're going to end with again today. This is about action, this passage. Although we're thinking about stuff, it's about action. It's saying, get ready to act. In old translations, this phrase, a brilliant phrase, okay? It's, It's translated as this, gird up your loins, I'm not going to let your mind boggle too much on what that might mean, because I think that's kind of, whoa, what, what is that? So I'll tell you, um, in, those, in the old days, back then, um, people used to wear robes as they wandered around, particularly uh, men, I, th- I think. Okay? And uh, I'm, I don't frequent the robe very often, although I don't know if, if any, uh, any guys here do or any girls do. Uh, dressing gown, I've got a pretty good grasp of, but not a robe. But I'm told that a robe was pretty good. I'm imagining this. No one's told me. I'm just guessing. Okay. But I'm imagining when you're flouncing about, robes are great. So it's like kind of looking all regal and walking around. Robes are really good. If you want to do anything energetic or like that involves activity that is strenuous, I'm imagining robes are not that great. Okay, running, for example. If you were in the half marathon today, there's not really many in row. Actually, you know, I, don't, I won't say that. They're in all sorts of funny clothes. Uh, they're going to get very wet in that case. Um, but the idea of girding up your loins refers to this. And what it means is taking the trains of your robe and wrapping them around like your waist so that although you're in your robe, you can still run. You can still do strenuous activity. And so the implication here that Peter's saying is right off the bat, it's cold wet Sunday morning. Let's ease in. No, let's not ease in. So get ready. Something's coming. A situation is approaching, potentially right around the corner, that is going to require our focused and persistent 
uh, effort because it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. And he tells us straight away the key successful preparation for this challenge uh, in this verse. So let's read on. This is what he goes on to say. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Put all your hope in this gracious salvation. Living for King Jesus in exile is not something for the half-hearted. It's not for those with divided loyalties or for those with their foot in different camps. It involves putting all your hope in this gracious salvation. What that means is putting all your hope in Jesus means saying, Jesus, I am binding my destiny with you. I'm I'm with you now. And if you succeed, if it turns out at the end of the day, you know what? We backed the right horse there, didn't we? Wicked heaven and all that sort of stuff. It was all true. Who would have thought? Okay, if that happens, I succeed. Fantastic. But if it fails, you know what? We've got nothing else. We fail. Putting all your hope in Jesus means if he wins, I win. If he loses, I lose. And I've got no backup plan. I've got no plan B here. Now, I think there could be times in exile or times in life in general where you might think you could be tempted to believe you could get away with a slightly more reserved response to this whole Christianity thing. There are times where it's kind of easier than other times to say, yeah, you know what, on a Sunday, I'll give Jesus my allegiance. Yeah, he's the way maker. He's all this stuff. Brilliant. All of that sort of thing. But at the same time, you know you're putting your hope in other things. You, you're kind of what's, what's sharing your portfolio around different things. I've got a little bit of hope though in my career or my bank balance or my kids or my intelligence or my reputation or my spouse. You know, yeah, my hope's in him, but you know what? I don't want to get 2K away. What happens if he lets me down? I, I've got hope in other places too. And sometimes as Christians living in exile in different situations, what happens is that the dominant culture just leaves us alone. They they don't apply much pressure on us as Christians. And in those cases, you can get away with thinking, well, I'm going to have my cake and I'm going to eat it. I go to church. I enjoy the community. It's good for my kids, maybe. I'm not going to take it too seriously. I'm not going to put all my eggs in this basket. Come on. But Peter's point here is this, and it's repeated over and over again throughout this letter to the people he's writing to. He's saying, those times are behind you. Those times are gone. They're finished. Your place of exile now, guys, is turning the screw, and they are no longer content to leave you alone. And when that happens, you've got a very stark choice to make. Because then living in the middle doesn't make any sense anymore. And it will be all hope in Jesus or no hope in Jesus. And people who are kind of half-hearted in the middle say, no, no, I'd never give away this. And then two or three years down the line, they're like, who's Jesus? What a waste of time that was. And I don't think I've met any Christians before who've said, you know, that would be me. I, I could see myself doing that. But you know, I've met lots of Christians who have done that. I've felt the urge to do that on many occasions. How do we make sure that we've, we stick with Jesus, this wonderful source of hope, this source of love, this source of peace we talked about? We put all our hope in him. I've moved on a little bit from the passage to ourselves already, but I'm sure it doesn't take a massive leap of your contextual knowledge to see that there are parallels here between Peter's audience and us. In our culture, Christians have been allowed to get on with it for ages. When I was growing up, 
wasn't particularly good for your general coolness and status and that sort of respect. But actually, there was a latent respect for Christians. I don't know if some of you can remember the good old days, not quite the robe days, but a little bit past that. There was a kind of respect. At least we had some standards. At least we had something to believe in. A bit boring and naive, but, you know, there's something there. That's no longer the case. And for many of you, you'd think, well, I don't know what it's like to live in a culture like that. There's one commentator put it like this, and I use this quote a lot. He said, in the past, in, in, in the Western world, Christians were seen as the do-gooders. And remember the do-gooder days? We were do-gooders. Some of us must remember this. A few of us. Some people would have said this to us. Now we're not the do-gooders. We're the do-badders. Your allegiance to King Jesus is no longer seen as a neutral thing. It's seen as a negative thing. Increasingly, it's no longer tolerated in our place of exile. We are under pressure, and that pressure is likely to increase. And there is an urgency that is much close to the service, therefore, with this sort of stuff. And it seems, it's always been urgent that we're all in with Jesus, but it's more clear to us. That's one of the blessings of living in a world like today. We know where we stand on things. And so, therefore, at the beginning of this message, I want to ask you a question. And it's just very simple, but it's massive. Are you in? Are you in? Have you burnt your bridges to all other hopes? Will you put all your hope in this gracious salvation? I want to urge you, I want to appeal to you, unshackle yourselves from other allegiances today. Wrench your heart away from pursuing comfort and leisure as goals of your life today. Stop living for money and possessions today. Get those good things that are in your life. Things like family and friendships and hobbies and careers and interests and passions. They're good things. Put them in the right place under the lordship of Jesus. And if you notice any of them, get out of whack and you think, oh, I'm putting some of my hope in them. You've got to topple them as idols. I want to urge you, this is desperately important for us. Don't put your hope in those things. Put it all in King Jesus. You might think, it's a bit of a big deal. It's asking me quite a lot. Do you want me to do it now? I mean, do you want me to sign a piece of paper? How does that work? Well, not now. In about 25 minutes, you know, I'm going to ask some people here to say, you know what, I want to do this today. I want to state this again today. I know my hopes have been all over the place. No, it's all on King Jesus. And I'm going to ask you that. And at the end, it's going to be some of us just stand up. We're going to pray for you in that sort of case. But before that, I think it's probably fair (laughs) because it's quite a big deal. Let's, exp- let's talk a bit about what that looks like. What does it look like in practice? What does it look like to live as a signed up, committed citizen of heaven? Because that's what Peter is explaining in this passage. So let's go on. Verse 14. So what he says. Simple start, but incredibly important. So you must live as God's obedient children. So pause there. So you must live as God's obedient children. One of the kind of sentences you'd expect to hear in a church, I imagine. There's nothing too, too strange in there. But there's something, I think, jarring for us in this sentence. And some of us might be thinking, yeah, okay, I get it. I understand it. All the words make sense, and I can know all of it's good. But Peter, couldn't you have just done it differently? It would have been easy for you to switch one word, and it would have been absolutely true and correct, and would have been much nicer to us. Let's change it. Let's edit. So you must live as God's beloved children. Precious children, well-looked-after children. That's what we think of when we think of God as Father, don't we? We've sung it loads today. 
it's, we're precious to him. We're beloved. There's an intimacy about it. What? Why? I know it's right, but why the obedience thing? It seems heavy-handed. And it's a very familiar idea for us. If you're a Christian here or you're not a Christian here, you know, you'd know what obedience is. Um, and if you are a Christian, you'd know this is in the Bible lots. But there's something about obedience that just, uh, you kick against it. This is illustrated to me a few years ago in a very strange way. Um, and I went to this wedding, basically, and uh, the vicar uh, did his whole talk off, off on one point. It was on this. And it was on the basis that the, the couple involved had decided to veer from the traditional wedding vows. And the wife had not said to her husband, something that's in one of the traditional wedding vows that very few people would use nowadays, but uh, at that time he thought it was worth talking about. And in the traditional vows, uh, it says, uh, I promise to love, honor, and obey. Okay. Um, now, little side here, I am making no comment today <laughs> on whether that is a good or a bad idea. Just to say, I'm, not, I'm completely neutral. You can ask my opinion later. I won't tell you. But I, I'm not talking about today. that today. But from that point, he jumped off and did a whole talk about obedience, okay? Because he thought it was a wonderful idea. This couple had uh, uh, veered away from this, which maybe you agree with, and maybe I agree with. I, I don't know. But his point was something that I definitely didn't agree with, where he backed it up by saying this. He said, I'm so glad that you didn't promise to obey because obedience is not for people. Obedience is for dogs. It's the vicar. <laughs> I was like, this is strange. I wasn't expecting to hear this. Obedience is not for people. Obedience is for dogs. Now, while that's a strange view to hear in a church, that would certainly be the view of our culture. And you might well have that view today. Obedience is not seen as a virtue in our culture. It's seen as a huge weakness. Obedience is either something to be pitied or it's actually a moral failing. Because if you're obedient, what you're doing is you're neglecting your responsibility to make your own decisions. That's dangerous behavior. And it's, it's not moral. It's not a good thing to do. And for us as Christians, I guess if you read any of the Bible, You'll know that almost every page has this word on it. Like, yeah, yeah, obedience is technically good. We know that. But we can carry over this negativity towards the idea into our relationship with God. And we say, yeah, yeah, of course we know we should obey God. But can we just not go on about it? It just lets us set one of those things to the side. And we, we basically lean towards and invent theologies where actual obedience to God is kind of an optional extra to Christianity. And there are many in mainstream Christian thought now, whether that's written down, that is what people are communicating in many different ways. Yeah, obedience, yeah, kind of something in the mix, but let's not get too carried away. Instead, this, and I guess we could say this, our Father in heaven, well, he'd never demand obedience from us. No, he'll be proud of us. Whatever we choose to do with our lives, we're his children after all. Again, unlikely people would say that out loud, but that seems to be very much in the air, that kind of thinking. But Peter is reasonably firm here. To live as a Christian is to necessarily obey our Father. That's what it is. Often the Father image we use, and rightly so, to think of intimacy, it's interesting when it's used in the Bible, very often it's used to at least underline the same concepts in the other images of God. King, shepherd, Lord, master. Yes, there's an intimacy, but of course there's an authority here. That's, that's how it goes. That's, that's in the whole mix of this conversation. 
And I know we've got an inbuilt kick against this stuff, but I think when we think about it, we probably think of those angels. What, what, what are they doing? He's going to spec savers or something. I mean, what, what do they see that's wonderful here? This doesn't sound very wonderful. When we think about it, I, I think we can get it. Very quickly, we can get it. Because obedience isn't just for dogs. We need someone to obey. That's really important for us. Actually, Jesus described us. I don't know if it's more complimentary exactly, but he described us as animals. Did you know that? Not dogs, thank goodness. Some of you might like dogs. That's fine. Uh, what animal was Jesus' favorite animal to refer to people? Sheep, okay? Your sheep. That's what Jesus used to say to people regularly, okay? I'd be offended by that, to be honest. I don't like sheep. They seem pretty dumb. But I think that was the general point, okay? <laughs> um, but he said we were like sheep, and sheep need a shepherd. They wander off. They fall down ditches. They can't get fed, okay? They need a shepherd. <laughs> that was good, that one, Beth, wasn't it? I've been working on that. The night of the Apollo suit. Um, Peter describes a few verses later, he describes us differently. He says we're like newborn babies. That's how he talks about us. He says we're newborn babies who need the nourishment of spiritual milk. You get the idea? Those two images. What are they communicating to us? They're communicating that we, we are like sheep and we're like babies. We can't get by on our own. We need people to follow. We need people to obey. In our culture that says you're, on, you're independent, you're autonomous, don't worry about obedience, don't worry about authority. Well, the problem is we carry that through and we look at the world we live in now and we're like, yeah, seriously, don't worry about those things because look at the people that we're meant to be following. Flipping heck, this is a nightmare. Actually, that doesn't lead to freedom. That leads to fear and anxiety because we need someone to follow. It's rooted into us. The good news the wonderful news of Christianity is we found one who is not some kind of shifting politician who's just going for ambition and will be out in four years anyway. We got the God of heaven. We got our father, King Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. But let's push this a little bit further because Peter does and it gets a little bit stickier in verse 17. Let's jump to verse 17. And remember, he writes, that the heavenly father to whom you pray, has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. If anyone can spot a word in there, there is not a word that we want to talk about. It's a word we've sung about, and we were pretty clear that we didn't like it as well. Let's, before we get to that word, let's just see the context here. Note again who God is here. The heavenly father. He's still our father. Peter's still clear on that. He cares for us. He loves us. He looks after us. But also, he judges us. And then there's this alarming word. In the family relationship as citizens of heaven, as children of the father, Peter expects there to be a fear involved. And he sees that as a good thing. The idea of the fear of God, and that's what this passage is talking about, I think is one of the most unnerving ideas in the whole Bible to modern ears. And I, I think for good reason in many ways. And the basic question would be this. How could you have a family setting where there is fear and that is a good thing? That is an excellent question. That is not a question we should hide away. That's a very good question to be asking. And we've got to be incredibly careful with this idea of the fear of God. But we've got to be careful in two different directions, okay? We can't push it further than it's meant to go. 
that's, that's definitely the case. But on the other side, we must not over-explain it so much that it no longer means anything either. Okay? We can't make it all out to be that being a citizen of the kingdom of God, like, uh, like we got there, is to be totally insecure, unsafe, constantly trying to placate some sort of tyrannical taskmaster, like this poor, poor girl here from Google Images. Um, that's not a good idea. So we can't push it too far, but at the same time, we can't just rub it out. And some say, ah, oh, the fear of God, yeah, yeah. It's like standing in front of a big mountain, and it's just really impressive, and it's just kind of full of, you use other words like awe and stuff like that. Now, just to be clear, that is in the concept of the fear of God, that's for sure. But really, we are wiping away something we have to, that the Bible repeatedly links the fear of God with, which is a reverent fear of God does involve a keenness to avoid not getting punished by God. That's, that's in almost every reference in the Bible. You think, well, how, how can we navigate between those two then? Well, how does that work? Well, I think um, the way I can understand this, the best way I can explain it, is through my experience when I was a teacher, I saw this at work. In a, let's say I'm going to apostrophize. So for the, for the CD, there are some rabbit ears being given on every time I use the word fear in the next few minutes, just so you know. Um, you know not on CD, is it? It's going to be on SoundCloud or something. Anyway, by the by. Okay. Um, I saw as a teacher two types of fear, families that had two types of fear that were very, very different. One was healthy and one was very unhealthy. I'll explain what I mean. What used to happen, I don't know if this is still the case nowadays because it was about 10 years ago almost, but every now and again in the, back in the old days, not the robe days, not the, not the, not the kind of do-gooder days, but a few years ago, uh, kids would misbehave. I don't know, teachers here. Steve, does that still happen? Steve, yeah, every now and again. And uh, like Steve and other teachers here, I would have a whole, I don't want to use the word arsenal, that might sound a little aggressive, but uh, of tactics uh, to, uh, to help those young scamps who would, would do things like this. And, uh, and uh, some of them would be rewards, just so you know. But then again, there would be some sanctions. So like, uh, move in the classroom to sit on your own. A classic, okay? Stay for 10 minutes after the lesson. I was allowed them for 10 minutes without telling their parents. That could work, okay? Or the mighty detention. All of these things. Some of you kids at school, I'm letting you in the mind of your teachers. This is important information for you. But just every now and again, again, I'm sure this doesn't happen now, but did happen then. Even when I did these things, there was the odd little scamp who would pay no attention at all. And their performance and their behavior would not improve one jot. Okay, it never happens now. No, Beth never happens now, does it? No, no, definitely not, no. Okay, um, well, it did in those days. And on those occasions, I would try something slightly different, and I found a method that was really helpful to me that usually worked much more effectively, and that was if my uh, methods failed, I would go to the office at the end of the day, I would have a look on the computer, and I'd have a little chat with mum or with dad. And the strangest thing was, while it wasn't always a success, often there would be a massive improvement in the kid's behavior. Okay? Now, the question is why? Why did that happen in those situations? Well, surely the idea is very simple. That child feared, in inverted commas, their parents more than they feared, in inverted commas, me. Now, I want to be clear. Obviously, that had more, that was more than just a simple case of fearing punishment. There'd be other things going on. I hope they would have respected their parents more than they respected me. I genuinely hope, and usually this was the case, they would have loved their parents more than they loved me. But it would be stupid to say that fear of punishment wasn't an issue at all in those conversations. 
I mean, political correctness gone mad, I know, but I was allowed to move them in class. I wasn't allowed to nick their Xbox. What's going on in this world, okay? Their parents are allowed to do things like that, and those things have an effect. So that's one type of, I think we could say fear in inverted commas, in a family that can be healthy. It leads to good and wise behavior, growth as a human being. However, as a teacher, I also noticed something else going on. And occasionally, tragically, you'd find out about families where a very different type of fear was used in the home. And there might be substance abuse involved, might just be people with a, a, a real temper problem for mum and dad, uh, and even physical abuse going on. And on those occasions, when we got a sniff of that, the school dealt with that in different ways, but for us as a department, we would say, no, okay, phoning home might be quite effective for our short-term goals here, but that's not, we're not playing that game. We just have to find another way here because that is unhealthy, okay? Do you see the two models? We use similar ideas, but there's a kind of fear or reverent fear in each occasion. One is positive, one is negative. Now, listen, really important. Living as a citizen of heaven involves living in reverent fear of our Father, which is like in the first type of family. It keeps us living good and wise lives. It is not like in the second type of family where your will gets crushed by overblown and erratic displays of power and control. And when we sung the song earlier, we are no longer a slave to fear. What we're celebrating is, I don't live in that family anymore. The, the, just, dude, I just don't know what the, the mum or dad are going to do at any given moment. They just, I don't have a place here. I'm insecure and unsafe. I don't know if they love me. That's what we mean when we sing that song. But it doesn't mean there is no sense of uh, authority in the home, any sense of wisdom, and any sense of discipline in the home. The book of Hebrews, the writer explains this so well. I'm going to read the whole of Hebrews 12, 5 to 10, because I think it just sums this up brilliantly. Okay? Hebrews 12, 5 to 10. The words will come up behind me if you can't flick in time. He says this, have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? Just note that again. Just think of how the Bible thinks about these things. These one battery are encouraging words. This is wonderful. This is good. Okay, We don't think of this stuff like that, but this is what the Bible, God's word says. He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, Remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you, as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? What's he saying? What he's saying is that as citizens of heaven, as, as children of the father... We live in an atmosphere of, of discipline. And it encourages our, dis, our obedience, but the next verse is the key verse. If you're still struggling with this, I hope this next verse will get you on the plane with the angels here. Because why? Why does God want discipline in the home? Is it just so we all toe the line and let him sit on the sofa all Sunday afternoon playing on his phone so no one bothers him? Is that why? Just so we're well behaved, so we're, we're a good family. Is that why? No, this is what it says. Amazing verse. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us. Why? So that we might share in his holiness. So that we might share in his holiness. Does that holiness ring any bells? Have you heard, we heard that so far today. 
I was in 1 Peter. So let's jump back to 1 Peter now to understand what that means. Because once we've got that, we've got everything. We understand what's going on here. Okay, share in his holiness. What does that mean? Well, one P- Peter was keen on this in the whole of his passage. It's verse 15 this time. It says this, But now you must be holy, there we have the word, in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Our Father's goal in his discipline is not just that we'd be good boys and girls, it's that we'd be holy. What's holiness? What does it mean? Well, for many of us, I think we'd think of holiness like uh, uh, holiness is moral perfection. It's always doing stuff right, never doing anything wrong. That's what holiness is. And that's often the implication we get from it. But I guess if we go down that road, road, you're thinking, wait, we're, we're coming to the end. I'm looking for the wonderful bit. I'm not really seeing it here. Because you could say an understandable misunderstanding there would be, well, we've got it. I understand how this works then. This father that we should be putting our hope in, he demands obedience. He's big on discipline. And he has completely unrealistic standards of his children. Great. Thank you. That's not helpful for me at all. But that's That's not what Peter's getting at here. We need to push through a little bit. This is a deep wonderfulness, if I can put it like that. Because yes, often holiness does refer to a standard of moral perfection, but that's not what the word means. The phrasing of Hebrews 12.10 is really helpful. It's that we might share in God's holiness. Because what is holiness? Holiness, throughout the Bible, is the defining, unique characteristic of God. When the angels in heaven are not looking down on us going, whoa, it's wonderful, they are generally singing a song that is really, really repetitive. It has one main word over and over again. And it's just this one, holy, 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 holy. It means completely other, totally unique, separate, above all else. It's it's basically saying the godness of God is who God is. Now listen, this is what Peter's getting at. He's saying, why all this discipline? Why this talk of reverent fear? It's because God wants to share his defining characteristic with us. He wants us to grow into that. He wants us to have a flavor of who he himself is and walk the world with a taste of his holiness. Made in God's image, we were at the beginning. It's a familiar concept, but just think about it. That we could be like God in some way. We wanted to be like God in a way that was very unhelpful and very unhealthy. That's the story of the beginning of Genesis. But the message of the Bible, the redemption that Jesus offers is, yeah, there was a way that was unhelpful, but there's something you need to grasp about that because actually you are made in my image and I want to restore that image in you. I want you to share in my holiness. Now, just to put this in contrast before we close, Peter lays out an alternative here. If you're still thinking, okay, there's that here, all my hope in Jesus. What about over here? Well, Peter sums it up pretty well in this passage, a number of verses of what the option is of the other way of life. Uh, We've got three of them here. Don't slip back into your old ways of living, he says, to satisfy your own desires. That's what the people used to do before they knew Jesus. For you know, he says, that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life, empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And right at the end of the passage, sums it up like this. All humanity in our natural state, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. What he's saying is the culture of the place of exile is one which leads me to live for myself. It's empty 
and ultimately it's completely momentary, fleeting, and utterly meaningless. I think that's pretty transferable, to be honest, 2,000 years later. And some of you might, might think, well, that's a bit harsh, though, isn't it? A bit harsh to talk about culture in that way. What's incredibly strange nowadays, all the masks are off nowadays, I think, is that while obviously people might not like my tone there, increasingly in the public conversation, people are admitting this. I don't know if you noticed this. In our culture, people are saying, yeah, okay, let's not be too mean about it, but yeah, essentially life is fleeting, empty, and completely meaningless. That, that's how it is. We just have to make do. That seems to be how people are talking more and more. What are the mantras of our modern age? Well, things like live for the moment, just accumulate. Clock up experiences, chase after pleasure, be true to yourself. All of those things are basically saying this, underneath them. They don't say it at the top, but they say it underneath them. They're saying, yeah, let's everyone get clear, just everyone so we all know, we know too, we're all going to die really soon. And our lives have no real meaning at all. Okay, everyone got it? Great, let's make the best of it we can. That's increasingly the philosophies of our world are starting on that premise To live as citizens of heaven is to have entirely different aspirations. Your father does not want you to make the best of a bad situation. He doesn't want you to make the best of an empty and meaningless life. He wants you to share in his defining, unique quality as the creator of the universe. It's wonderful. It's also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. My prayer is that God would bring our vision and our eyes in line with the heavenly perspective on these things. So let's close then and wrap up. As temporary residents and foreigners, as exiles, we need to understand this world is not our home. But we also need to know what our home is like and how we live as citizens of heaven here. And I hope I've been able to explain that a little bit today. It's a kingdom where the king of all things, we find this amazing truth that he's our dad. He's our father. And he treats his citizens just like children. And like any good father, he wants the best for his children. He wants more than the best. He wants us to be like him. And to that end, he, he disciplines us. And he calls us to respect him in that and also to obey him. But he's not to crush us is to lift us to levels of dignity that we could never have imagined that we could have had. And so to finish, just like I started, I just simply want to ask the question again. Are you in?